Around the world, populations are ageing rapidly. There is currently more than 1 billion people over the age of 60 years, representing 14% of the global population. By 2050, this population will have more than doubled to 2.1 billion. With population ageing as the backdrop, a number of global challenges take centre stage, including rising rates of non-communicable diseases, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, the threat of future global pandemics, climate change, mobilisation of civil society and economic uncertainty. The United Nations Decade of Healthy Ageing, launched in 2021, represents a concerted action to prioritise healthy ageing and improve the lives of older people. Amidst the backdrop of the decade, now is the time to explore challenges and strategies to improve health and social systems that ultimately impact the function and quality of life of current and future generations of older people. My name is Jane Barrett, Secretary General of the International Federation on Ageing. Join me, along with esteemed experts and colleagues, in a series of dialogues which aim to help reframe the intersecting challenges that impact not only the health and well-being of older people, but the way we all live and age. This is the Reframing Healthy Aging podcast. Throughout this series, we have examined factors such as health systems, equity and integration of care, which can either support or inhibit the well-being of older people and those of all ages. It is clear that improvements must be made across these areas to promote healthy ageing across the life course, and there are strategies to do it. But how do we measure impact, and what does success look like in the United Nations decade of healthy ageing? What kind of evidence do we need to mobilise action and influence policy change? With me today to answer these important questions are Mr David Sinclair and Dr Amuthawali Tiagarajan Jothaswaran. Dr Jothaswaran is a technical officer in the Ageing and Health Unit at the World Health Organisation. As an epidemiologist, he is a leading expert on defining healthy ageing, monitoring health at a population level and the factors that influence healthy life expectancy. He has participated in establishing the Technical Advisory Group for Measurement of Healthy Ageing to provide advice on the measurement, monitoring and evaluation of the UN Decade of Healthy Ageing at the global, regional and national levels. Mr David Sinclair is Chief Executive Officer of the International Longevity Centre UK, a think tank on the impact of longevity on society and a constant voice in influencing policy and government to support ageing population. ILC UK have recently established their Healthy Ageing and Prevention Index, a tool to track progress on prevention and also engage partners and global health leaders to move from commitment to action on preventative health. 
So first and foremost, Jothiswaran, what are the ways to measure and assess healthy ageing at a population level? And particularly in the UN Decade of Healthy Ageing, why is this so important? Great. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast. Uh, first of all, the true impact of UN Decade of Healthy Ageing will be measured on older persons' abilities to build and maintain functional ability and also older persons' uh, intrinsic capacity. In 2015, WHO released a world report on aging and health, which proposed a new public health framework for actions on population aging. Central to this report is a new conceptual model for healthy aging. Rather considering healthy aging from the perspective of presence or absence of disease, WHO took a functioning-based approach and defined healthy aging as the process of developing and maintaining functional abilities that enables well-being in older age. In other words, it's about supporting older people to build and maintain their abilities to be and to do the things they have reason to value. According to this new uh, conceptual framework, functional ability of older persons is determined by two aspects. One is the intrinsic capacity of the individual and the other one is the environment in which they live. And the interactions between these two will define the actual functional ability of the older people. For example, as we age, our musculoskeletal system experience a gradual decline. As a result, our physical capacity to walk fast or move around may be reduced. However, older person can maintain their functional ability levels if they live in a supportive environment with good access to transportation, assistive mobility devices, and age-friendly roads and payments. So to understand healthy aging of the population, it is utterly important to measure all three dimensions of healthy aging separately. Only then, we will know where to invest our resources and where the progress should be made. In an ideal situation, a population metrics of functional ability, intrinsic capacity, and enabling environment should be at the same level. So what I mean is that if you put those scores together, it should form an equilateral triangle with all sides being equal. All these three dimensions can be measured using combination of objective and self-reported measures. For example, the built environment can be objectively measured using a geospatial data. Likewise, there are numerous ways to measure population's intrinsic capacity through objective measures and also self-reported questions that have been popularly used in ongoing health and retirement studies around the world. For the UN decade, um, measuring healthy aging is important because our vision is to improve long and healthy lives of the aging population. Healthy aging is a process. So targeting public health interventions on healthy aging, particularly on improving intrinsic capacity and functional ability will eventually improve older persons' long and healthy lives. Hence, the true measure of UN Decade of Healthy Aging and the impact will be counted on the improvement in intrinsic capacity and functional ability of the population. Can you talk a little bit about the differences for an older person living in a, a less developed country, you know, when we look at these three different dimensions? I think for older people living in a lower middle income country, all these three dimensions are certainly important. First is that often we measure older people's health progress based on the disease-based approach, which often has a very little meaning. 
from my own experience, for example, when I was doing community population surveys in India and also in, in China and Africa, often older people uh, complain about the health situations in relation to their abilities to do things in their life. For example, older people are less concerned about the diseases they have, rather they are more concerned about whether they may be able to go and attend the granddaughter's wedding. That's much more important for older persons. So I think this, these concepts are still relevant for older people in low and middle income country, uh, but often uh, implementing and measuring them has several challenges. For example, it may be quite straightforward to measure older people's uh, intrinsic capacity, and it may be quite challenging to measure older people's functional ability. For example, uh, functional ability, uh, the activities that older people value in their life when they get older in Africa may be completely different for an older person in the United States or in high income countries. So using that value judgment on what activities is much more meaningful for someone living in low income countries compared to someone living in high income countries is still uh, required further investigation and, and further research. But however, there are some core set of activities that everybody value. For example, abilities to meet the basic needs, abilities to move around, abilities to learn, grow and make decisions, abilities to build social relationship and abilities to contribute to the society. These are the very simple and core activities irrespective of where older person live, older people value them. And it's important for us to improve and help the older people to maintain those abilities uh, as long as possible. That should be the focus of public health programs and policies. You've really made a, a really strong connection because what you described in that last part of your response, you know, I understand to be functional domains and that connects back to the work of WHO and, and age-friendly environments and, of course, you know, one of the key action areas of the decade. So, David, I want to now turn to you, David Sinclair, CEO of ILC United Kingdom, and, you know, talk about this concept of prevention. And, you know, ILC UK has been really forging a path around talking with member states and governments about how to mobilise action on healthy ageing and prevention. So what are the tenets of that kind of concept that you're driving action with? It's key. There's a lot we already know in terms of how we keep ourselves healthy. In, in terms of individual behaviour, for example, we know what we eat and what we drink um, is key, but we know we shouldn't smoke. Um, at a government level, we increasingly know that there's an extraordinarily strong case for investing in prevention. Investing in adult vaccination, for example, is good for our health, but it's good for our economy too. And yet clearly across the world, healthcare systems have not yet managed to sort of, in many places, refocus health spend and health initiatives around prevention. It's really clear in an ageing society, in an ageing world, that we need to be, yes, investing in supporting good health in old age, but actually helping us all no matter how old or young we are, stay healthy throughout our lives and preventing ill health is key to that. So, David, you know, when we're talking about investments and government investments in health promotion and prevention, in times of austerity, how can civil society really encourage governments to invest not only on a life course approach to promotion and prevention, but, you know, focusing on older people? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really big challenge. And I think it's why evidence and getting the right sort of evidence in front of politicians is extraordinarily important. Politicians need a reason to act. And with health, of course, it's really important we're acting on the basis of of evidence. Politicians like their numbers. uh, And I think evidence can help us make a compelling case. So, for example, in terms of the work we've done in this space, um, our evidence shows that if we prevent ill health, people work longer, they spend more, they care more, and they volunteer more throughout our lives and into old age. And you're absolutely right, we've got to make sure that this investment comes. If you look across the whole of the OECD, countries spend about 2.8% of their health budgets on prevention. Canada spends about 6%, one of the highest highest countries. And over the time it's increased um, its spending, you've seen a, a steady decrease in avoidable mortality, and you've seen an increase in life expectancy expectancy and you've seen one of the highest OECD five-year survival rates for lung and breast cancer. Now, now we, for me, that's a starting point, but it's really clear that, you know, that investing in prevention, having the evidence that prevention works is an extraordinarily important thing that we have to do if we're going to improve the health of, of all of us as we get older. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right, David. I, I want to turn back to Jyoti Swaran for a moment and uh, talk with you about age disaggregated data. For as long as I've been in this business, we've talked about the lack of age disaggregated data. And I feel as though we've almost come to the time that we need to actually acknowledge that it exists, but find out different ways to to measure change. Um, You're responsible for this whole area of metrics in the WHO and the um, Ageing and Health Technical Unit. Can you speak to this problem that we've got? I think in order to understand the need for age disaggregation, I think we have to go back to the history and see where this practice started from. So traditionally, our effort uh, to look at the data started with chronic disease mortalities. So if you look at the NCD mortality, uh, we consider premature mortality as someone dying uh, before 70. And this practice influenced the age lack of age disaggregation uh, at a national statistics office level because often people tend to round the age group uh, of people aged 70 and above and probably consider more granular disaggregation in in less than 60. So this has been uh, the case for several years. And now we are trying to change this practice by enforcing countries to uh, disaggregate data till 100 plus in each five years age group. So that's the kind of recommendations that we are are pushing forward uh, for countries uh, countries to implement. And also, besides the disaggregation, it's also important for us to measure what matters to older people. What is the point of disaggregating a data uh, that has very little meaning to older persons, uh, very little value for making policy decisions? So I think the age disaggregation is certainly important, but also we need to be mindful whether the data that we are collecting at the moment is what matters to older persons and for the policymakers. If you put the second question in place, you often have very little data that's been routinely collected and monitored that's relevant for older persons and for policymakers. David, just following on from Jyotiswaran's comments, um, you know, measuring what matters for older people, what matters for older people from your perspective? I think one of the things that's firstly worth coming back on is I think that there is 
is and has been an element of age discrimination in the collection of data across the world. And I think that there are still lots of people in lots of different countries who just don't, frankly, value the lives of older people enough. And as a result, healthcare systems aren't correcting the data we need. And for me, that is important. There is some great work going on. The the Titchfield Group, um, based in the UK in the ONS, is trying to strengthen some of the evidence we have. But I think that the value of data, you know, we would say, you know, it, it has extraordinary important value but in some ways it's just about starting to create a conversation rather than saying this is extraordinarily important for us as individuals so for example we're launching a a new healthy aging and prevention index that looks at uh, a global index that measures and ranks 121 countries on six healthy aging and prevention indexes including health span work span lifespan uh, income the environment and happiness and and happiness is one of those that, that, that is often not not measured and we plan to launch it at the world health assembly but one of the things that's really striking about it is you know in itself it doesn't answer any questions telling me that country x is higher than country y isn't in itself particularly helpful but what it can do is allow us to open a conversation so if we can then as we did a month ago get um, someone from the israeli government in a room with someone from the uk government and say look why do you think you're higher on this score than the other it allows them to learn from each other it allows them to identify areas where you want to see progress so i think as much as anything else the data is partly of value for us to say look actually this um it's not going to give us the answers it may end up giving us more questions perhaps so building on that um important meeting where you brought ministers together in, and going back to the un decade of healthy aging um you know to what degree can civil society hold member states accountable to the goals outlined as part of the decade? And I'll ask you first, David, and then go to uh, Jothi Swaran. I think we need to make sure, as, as advocates in this in this area, we need to make sure that they do. So, um, coincidentally, today we're going to be going to the British Parliament, and I think it's really important to collaborate. We're working together with Age International in the UK, and we're going to have 10, 20 UK politicians and policymakers in the room to talk about, well, actually, about the decade for healthy ageing uh, and about how we in the UK can make the most of it in the context of universal health coverage. Um, so, whilst the event will be taking place in the UK, we think the UK has a responsibility in terms of actually engaging across the whole world on universal health coverage. And and I hope that some of the people we've got around the room will listen. Uh, Having a little bit of data about different countries and a bit of evidence allows us just open that conversation and allows us to start to talk about some of the different challenges you have in different places. Thanks, David. But Jothi Swaran, you know, how does the WHO support member states in the monitoring and the evaluation of the decade? How is that process happening? I think the WHO is supporting member states to do a national-led monitoring and evaluation system. Uh, To put that in place, we are doing several things. First is we developed a global monitoring and evaluation framework for the UN Decade of Healthy Aging. So that's the first step that we completed last year. And second, we identified around 80 indicators that are important to understand the progress the countries are making and also impact of of the public health actions and programs the countries are putting in place to improve health and well-being of older persons. And the third, we are also providing uh, and, and working on a technical product to build a national capacity 
to monitor and evaluate national programs on healthy aging. Uh, so uh, to going back to your earlier question, Jane, what does the civil society can do? Uh, in fact, in this technical product, one of the first steps is to bring different stakeholder groups together in designing a new national monitoring and evaluation system. And the engagement of civil society is certainly critical in that process. And also the data collection process, there are some good examples from HelpAge International where older people themselves monitor their own national programs and their own policies that are put in place. So older people have been actively engaged in the monitoring and evaluation process with the support of civil societies uh, on the ground. So there are some good examples that we are, we are looking at and exploring and we are learning from those experiences and reporting these interesting case studies in the new technical products that we are working to support national capacity. And of course, these technical products and all of the things that you talked about, you know, hopefully will be available on the Decade platform, which is a really important source of information for us all. I want to just, you know, labour the point a little bit more, David, around civil society. And it's IFA's belief that we need to bring unlike together. There's no point in talking to all of the same as much as we enjoy working with ILC UK. Can you just give us an example of how we, we can bring unlike together to really push an agenda around not only metrics, but also prevention? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think the real challenge and opportunity is how we do, as the WHO suggests, you know, really bring together a range of different stakeholders in this place. We're, we're launching a new prevention coalition. I'm really, really keen. This isn't just organizations interested in age. It should be organizations in, interested in a very, very broad range of issues. It's really hard, but you know, it, we had a really interesting example in the UK recently where our big older person's charity ahead of our budget did some work with um, a younger person's charity. And it strikes me that those sorts of collaborations allow us to get engaged with not with the topics in a slightly different way and allow us to reach different audiences. Um, the ILC Global Alliance are, at the moment are trying to do some work around climate change. Now, now the debate on climate change is, is often polarised around that, you know, it's all older people's fault in lots of places. Now, actually, we need to get into that debate and engage with a whole new group of stakeholders just to explain why climate change is going to have such a devastating impact upon older people across the world and why we need them as champions, um, not to be seen as people who've contributed to the problem. So I think that there are stakeholders we haven't reached yet. And I think the challenge is, how do we do it? I don't think it's easy, but actually, I, I think you're right. We need to try. We do need to try. And I, I want to circle back now and use the example of diabetes. You know, diabetes as, as a non-communicable disease and diabetes, the prevalence you know, galloping along and also population ageing and the intersection of people with diabetes and population ageing. And, and go back to Jyothi Swaran and talk about intrinsic capacity because it's our belief that, you know, we need a prevention promotion angle to diabetes, you know, but we also need to have an integrated care pathway so how does intrinsic capacity, functional ability and the environment kind of fit around these issues of population ageing and the prevalence of diabetes increasing? Uh, first of all, chronic diseases do impact intrinsic capacities of older persons. Uh, 
no way we can say that dementia do not influence cognitive capacities of older persons. So if you look at the WHO's definition of intrinsic capacity, we defined intrinsic capacity as all the physical and mental capacities that an individual can draw on at any time. And this physical and mental capacity is further subdivided into five domains, cognitive, psychological, sensory, locomotor, and vitality. So all the chronic conditions, including diabetes, do have a significant impact on intrinsic capacities. However, when we did the causal model and tried to look at whether chronic disease predict older people's functioning or intrinsic capacity that predicts older people's functioning, what we learned from that analysis is that intrinsic capacity is an independent predictor of older people's uh, functioning in terms of their abilities to do the basic activities of daily life. So hence, that's a, in fact a rational for WHO to put the policymakers in a different perspective, to say that you need to target your public health interventions, particularly promotion interventions on improving intrinsic capacities of older persons. You know, that's a very important finding, that intrinsic capacity is an independent predictor. You know, it's a very important finding. So then I come back to you, David, and just talk with you about, you know, good practice. Now, you're at the forefront of prevention. You know, we have the Healthy Ageing and Prevention Index that's going to be launched. You know, you've got meetings at the government today. You know, what are some examples of good practice, leadership that go beyond, you know, the conversation that really will influence policy and impact the quality of life of older people? Perhaps let me just come back around diabetes. And I think you're right, that's an extraordinarily important point. One of the things that a piece of research we did recently showed that the annual cost of medication non-compliance um, in the US was between 100 and 290 billion. Um, Australia, about 7 billion. The, there was lots of hospitalizations attributed to non-compliance of medication, not just diabetes, but across the board. And it strikes me that part of our agenda has to be about thinking about issues like this. In terms of of, in terms of good example, one of the best examples around prevention is that the real-time data that the UK has had for over a decade now in relation to uh, influenza uptake, where on a weekly basis during the winter vaccination period, data goes from local services up to the Department of Health and the Minister. And then if you can actually essentially, if you're in the Department of Health, drill down to individual doctors, individual general practitioners, and identify areas where you have low uptake and then performance manage higher uptake. So it might be something simple like a fridge is broken or a supply arrived late. But sometimes um, having that management information has played a part in the UK becoming the sort of third or fourth highest um, uptake for older people for flu vaccine in the world. So I think there is some really interesting examples around the use of data. And I'm hoping that what we'll get from the index that we develop is some examples where one country is doing much better than another and we can start to say, well, actually, this helps strengthen the case that the initiative that they've got really seems to make a difference. You know, I, I think that there is some policy good practice. I think um, the New Zealand government, for example, starting young and, and essentially banning smoking for younger people and gradually increasing the age of eligibility by one year is, for me, an example of good practice in terms of long-term prevention 
prevention. You know, smoking is one of the worst things we can all do in terms of protecting our health. And and I think that there are some really interesting examples in, in that area where governments are starting to intervene more. And of course, we're really talking in some respects about health system reform, aren't we? And it's actually understanding the principles of success and seeing, you know, how they can be in situ in different systems. And of course, you know, David, we've done a lot of work in the area of vision health and the um, diabetic retinopathy barometer studies. And in terms of barriers to accessing screening and treatment, and adherence and persistence, sometimes it's as basic as the older person cannot pay for parking or they won't get the appointment. So this is low-hanging fruit. And it comes back to Jothiswaran's, you know, comments about one of the areas of metrics is the environment in which we're living and, you know, we actually are operating completely agree you know one of the there are some brilliant public health initiatives across the world i remember going to a meeting in texas and talking to a doctor there who said that they couldn't work out why there was a group of um, afro-caribbean people who weren't going to a public center for a prevention for vaccination and for for health and nutrition and they ended up having these big conversations about why it was and there were a couple of reasons one was it wasn't just not parking it was that frankly they couldn't afford to anyone to get them a lift because it was during work time so they couldn't get there but it was also things like oh they give free food but it's not the sort of food i like you know a real lack of thinking around and sometimes they're really simple solutions but i think what's really clear is we have to make it as easy as possible for people so for example whether that be offering services on the high street services in pharmacies services where people go anyway i think can play a a really really important role in this space and of course taking the services to the people so as we move to you know closing this important podcast on measuring impact in the UN decade of healthy aging. I'm just going to ask both of you, how do we measure success in the UN decade of healthy aging? What are the key milestones that we must achieve? So first of all, I'll go to you, Jothiswaran, and then to David. So in terms of, there are two aspects in terms of measuring success. One is uh, the progress the countries are making in terms of implementing the UN decade of healthy aging and all four action areas. So that's the first step. And whether all countries have implemented all four action areas is to, we are, we are studying it. So hopefully by this year, when we launch the Global Progress Report 2023, uh, we'll probably provide information on to what extent all countries have implemented all four action areas of UN Decade of Healthy Aging. So that's the first step. Second is whether these actions the countries have implemented, does it really have an impact on population health, which is the second step. So when we consider um, measurement and impact on population health, there are two aspects to it. One is there are long-term impact the population uh, may experience. Uh, First, there may be an improvement in healthy longevity of the population as a result of series of actions the countries are taking at the moment. Second, we also need to ensure there are some short-term outcomes and low-hanging fruit that we should target on rather than waiting for some long-term miracle to happen by 2030. So those short-term outcomes are like reducing societal attitude towards older people, reducing ageism and prevalence of ageism is certainly important. Second, age friendliness of communities is certainly important. We need to improve the age friendliness of our communities. Third, we also need to improve access to basic essential health services for older persons. 
So at the moment, the coverage of services is often measured on chronic diseases. We need to look at some basic services like urinary incontinence, nutrition, mobility, hearing impairment, vision impairment. Those are like very simple things that older people in many countries don't even have access to such services. It's important for countries to improve older people's access to those essential health services. Fourth, we also need to ensure that the family system of long-term care is not sustainable uh, in many low- and middle-income countries where a majority of older people are living. We have to improve older people's access and also caregivers' access to long-term care services by 2030. I think measuring impact on these four main areas would be certainly critical from my perspective. And Jyotiswaran, you know, these make perfect sense. And it also provides access for all of us on this podcast to actually be part of, you know, these different areas. So thank you for those. David. So I do hope that the tool we're developing will, in the long run, give us an opportunity to say, look, you know, through this index, country X has improved on this index, and that's great. So I hope there'll be a practical tool there we can provide. I absolutely agree that ageism is a huge issue here and, and has to be, you know, a higher profile for age and ageism across the world as a result of the decade is extraordinarily important. Age just isn't visible enough in the health debate. Secondly, for me, too many countries are still actually see age as being a problem. We don't see the economic value of age and, and ageing and older people. And, and I think if we can come out of the decade with a lot greater recognition of the economic contributions of older people, that will be extraordinarily helpful. And that's not just in terms of work, that's in terms of caring responsibilities and volunteering as well. Frankly, our, across the world, our economies would not be surviving if it wasn't for their contributions of older people in this way we'd be really really struggling uh, i was talking to one country linking back to our the index who's who comes fairly low on our index and you know it's a very blunt conversation in parliament again and actually they said you know what i don't care that we're low on the index what i care about is how we get better and actually what i want you to do is to tell me how do i push my way up the league and for me that's the right positive answer that people you know people know where they are in different countries but actually how can we use tools to advocate and for me i think that if you're politician who wants to change the world and you see evidence that says you're not doing as well as you should be rather than seeing that as being a criticism i think we should find a way for politicians to use that as a tool to convince their prime ministers and their finance ministers to invest in what's needed to get them higher up those league tables i'd like to thank our guests today Today's conversation has demonstrated that healthy ageing must be measured based on functional ability, intrinsic capacity and enabling environments to better understand where we can improve and, most importantly, where to invest resources. To advance global agendas and access to health services, global health leaders, with the support of civil society, industry, academics and others, must ask the question, How do we get better at protecting the health of our populations? After all, healthy ageing goes beyond functional ability to understanding the core values of people and how these values can be met. The International Federation on Ageing wishes to thank Amgen for their support in the creation, design and production of the podcast series, Reframing Healthy Ageing. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Reframing Healthy Aging podcast. To find more information on this episode and read the associated blog, please visit ifa.ngo. Let's continue the dialogue on healthy aging. Follow, like and engage with us on social media at ifaging. See you next time.